0: Hi, this is Arielle Jack, Student Ministries Director here at New Life Church. Thank you for joining our podcast today. I pray the following presentation encourages, challenges, and inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy the message. It was my goal at the beginning of this to take all these stories that are well-worn. I mean, a lot of these stories, You, if, if you ever went to Sunday school, these are the stories that are told, okay? But they... They get, I don't know, sensationalized to some degree. They get, you know, kidified to other degrees. I mean, have you ever seen the story of Noah with, like, the draft sticking their heads out of, like, a bathtub-type boat? And they're like, sailing on the sea that destroyed the whole earth and everybody in it. You know, it's, like, weird, like, apocalypse, and we're like, yay, you know, so... I wanted, my goal was to take every one of these stories and then read it again with just the text and say, what is going on here? So it's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. I hope you've gotten a lot out of it. The big idea for today's message is this. It's not about where you come from or what you can do. It's all about what God did and what he can do through you. I'm going to read that again. It's not about where you come from or what you can do. It's all about what God did and what he can do through you. Lord, I ask you to just be with this this talk this morning. God, I pray that your word would come alive, that you would speak through your servant and that you would make up for any lackings that I have today. Lord, let your word speak Loud and clear today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, I think I've coined a a, a term because I looked it up, I can't find it anywhere. I figured, you know, there's no really new original thoughts, but apparently Google hasn't picked up on this one yet. And it's this the concept of environmental inferiority. Environmental inferiority. Now, I'm not talking about like the trees and the leaves and the rocks and the rivers. I'm not talking. Environmental. I mean where you live, where you've come from, the things that have gone on in your life. Sometimes we live in this place of inferiority because we don't think we can do anything because of where we've come from or what has gone on in our past. Maybe you're parents were poor. Maybe your parents were abusive. Maybe your parents, I don't know, maybe they were rich and they were still, I don't know. Maybe they were great. Maybe you had a learning disability or some kind of disability or whatever. But maybe you were socially on the lower end. You were poor. And you know what? I can't do this. Maybe you grew up in a, in a, in a, a community where nobody goes to college and nobody does well. So therefore, I will not do, go to college and I will not do well or maybe you just have been run down your whole life and told that you will amount to nothing maybe you've come from an environment that you feel is not conducive to success or usefulness like Michael talked about last week usefulness for the kingdom of God or for to God at all i would call that environmental Now, this is very common in the scriptures. God loves to use people who come from that situation. Let's take a few people. Gideon, the man who said, and I quote, my family is the poorest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's family. Environmental inferiority. Rahab, a pagan and a prostitute. Environmental inferiority. Paul slash Saul. Saul a zealot who actively persecuted believers for their faith. How about Mary, a young woman with no experience beyond her own faith? Matthew, one of the disciples, who was a tax collector and a pariah in his own community. Now, he would be on the wealthy side, but he still came from an environmentally inferior situation. Peter, an uneducated fisherman, with a bit of a temper. Now, think about this one for a second. Jesus, a carpenter's son from Nazareth in the lower part of Galilee in northern Israel. Jesus didn't have environmental inferiority. Well, he didn't, but he could have, watch. John 7 says this, when some from the crowd heard these words, they said, this truly is, a, is the prophet. Others said, This is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does it? In 52, investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Galilee. Come on. John 1 says this, Philip found uh, Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and also the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel asked him. So he lived in a place where they didn't expect anything good. Where they were, you know, Nazareth was actually a a stronghold for the Romans at that point. Nothing comes out of Nazareth. Nothing good can come out of there. Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. They actually mocked him. It wasn't until after he rose and and showed himself to them that they go, oh, okay. What mom said was true. (laughs) So I want you to take this concept, and maybe it's going to be different for every person, but what is in your past that holds you back? What in your past holds you back? Today we're going to focus on the story of David. One of my favorite Bible heroes, I love David. Not just because this is my namesake, but I love David. Why? Number one, he's flawed. And he's passionate. Flawed and passionate can get you into trouble, by the way. He's quick. I love this part. He's quick to repentance. Because if you're flawed and passionate, you better be quick to your knees. Right? But the truth is, many of us really don't know the giant killer as well as we think. As I was studying this, I was given a lot of extra information. David definitely struggles with environmental inferiority. Would you turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16? 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm going to read some large portions of Scripture 1 Samuel chapter 16, and uh, what I want to do is I want to start, while you're looking at 16, let me read something out of chapter 9, because I think this is important to understanding the difference that David had to overcome, right? And this is the choosing of the first king of Israel, Saul, ready, in verse, chapter 9, but go to 16, I'll just read it out loud. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says this, there was a prominent man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zor, son of Bacroth, son of Athea, man, those are tough, son of, Benjam- of a Benjamite. Now, why did they list those names? Because they wanted you to know his pedigree. Man, he was good. He was he was the guy you expected to rise, right? He was the guy that in your company, you know they could do Jack squat, and they're still going to get promoted. You know what I'm talking about? You, everybody's talking, thinking, of, there's an image of somebody in their head right now. Oh, yeah, Joe Schmo. He didn't do nothing. He gets promoted every year. This was Saul. He was, he was this guy. And this, this particular father had a son named, and this is his name, Saul. An impressive young man. There was no one more oppressive among the Israelites than he. Now, this is key. He stood ahead and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel. This dude was like LeBron James. He was tall, he was handsome. He had everything going for him. This was the guy. All right? So now let's go to 16. And let's learn a little bit about David. <clears throat> Verse 1 of chapter 16 says this. The Lord said to Samuel, because now Saul is out. He was supposed to be this impressive dude, but he just kept messing up and, in big ways. So now Saul is out. And the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? <clears throat> since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and Go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. Now, everybody um, should know that Jesse is an interesting character. He's wealthy. Okay, he's wealthy. He's a landowner. Why is he thus? Because he's an ancestor. He's the grandson of Boaz. Now, if you know your Bible, Boaz is in the story of Ruth, in the book of Ruth. Now, interestingly enough, Jesse is the grandson of an Israelite man and a Moabite woman. He is a half-breed. And later on, we're going to see in tradition how this affects his mind. All right, verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord uh, directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Did you come in peace? Because Samuel's got this reputation now of, uh, you never really know what's going on with Samuel. uh, Verse 5, in peace, he replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before me. Now why does Samuel say that? I'll tell you why. Because he looks a lot like Saul. He is the eldest, which holds a lot of sway in that culture. And he's an impressive youth. But verse 7 kind of puts some shade on him. But The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Verse 8. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, Are these all the sons you have? As if seven wasn't enough. Are these all the sons you have? And then Jesse's response says this. There is still the youngest, he answered. But right now he's tending the sheep. Okay, let's just pause for a second here. Why is David tending the sheep? All of his sons were invited to this sacrifice this meal that they're having with the, with the prophet. But David was not summoned. Why? Well, I did a little research on this. I'm like, why? Because I'm, I'm reading this, like, why wasn't he? You know, when you read the scriptures, it's good to ask questions. Like, don't just read it say, like, why? What's going on here? What's going on here? Why is this person this way? What's going on? Well, Jewish tradition, according to the Ahadah, which sounds like Hagandah's flavor, is gives us some information now the agada is a first century rabbinic teaching that is like basically a commentary on the old testament it's not scriptural which means it's not divinely inspired but it's interesting now they have some tradition in this book they say that david's mother was named nezbeth okay and she is an interesting she's a pure jewish woman And she married Jesse, who was a half-breed, and she had seven sons with him. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole story because it's a little bit weird, but just trust me when I say, after the seventh son, Jesse separates from Nesbeth and starts pursuing, after three years, starts pursuing a concubine. The concubine loves Nesbeth, So she tells her about this, and Nesbeth ends up taking the place of the concubine and gets pregnant with David. So she knows that he's not illegitimate, but everybody else thinks he is. Nobody realizes that he, because according to Jesse, he's never, hasn't slept with his wife in three years, because he was a little bit drunk, apparently, So even when she tells him, he's like, no, I haven't. So his sons, the seven sons of Jesse, want to stone their mother and David at birth. Talk about environmental issues. So he is considered to be an illegitimate son. Hence, this is Jewish tradition, hence the reason why he was not invited to the meal. Now, I don't know if that's true, but that's the Jewish tradition around it. And it makes a lot of sense because Psalm 69 talks about, David talks about a period of his life where everything was going wrong. Nobody liked him. Nobody trusted him. He was blamed for everything. They wanted to kill him. And nobody can account for this time in David's life unless you put it in his younger years, interestingly enough. As a result, David grew up in a family in which he was despised, rejected, shunned, and outcast. Interesting. The story in the uh, Agadah actually states that the the reason he was sent out to watch the sheep by himself was that his brothers hoped he would get killed by a lion or a bear. That's what the rabbi said. I don't know if that's true, but that's interesting, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. A lion and a bear. What good brother? Sounds like the Israelite nation had an issue with brothers. Joseph gets sold by his brothers, and now Jesse's sons are out to, you know, have David ripped apart by a lion. Interestingly enough. So, he was treated with scorn and derision. The community followed the example of the family and assumed that David was full of sin and guilt. If someone, listen to this, if someone turned up, uh, turned up missing, they believed, something turned up missing, they believed David stole it, and they were forced him to replace it by his own dime. This is all Jewish tradition. He was often the object of jokes and pranks. The tradition is that this is also why David's for, uh, forced to go into the fields. Now, let's continue with actual scripture, non-tradition, but actual scripture in uh, verse 11. So Samuel told Jesse, "Send for him. I won't sit down to eat until he gets here." So Jesse sent for him. He had a beautiful, he had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Now, when somebody talks about eyes in the scriptures, it always, it always, um, had beautiful eyes. What does that mean? Um, they had a good personality. In in common too. so Leah had. Beautiful eyes, but she was kind of homely in the scriptures. Remember that story about Leah and uh, Rachel? But she had beautiful eyes. Or weak eyes means, uh, all right? So he was a handsome dude. So the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him and presented him, uh, presented of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power and in in David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power from that day forward. Now, remember Saul? Remember Saul? He was everything he should be. According to the world standard, he was the guy. David, on the other hand, was illegitimate shepherd whom his brother's hoped would just go away. But now the spirit of the Lord is on David from that day forward. Now look at 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul. And an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to trouble him. The illegitimate becomes king, whereas the legitimate is tormented. I want you to know today that your past doesn't dictate your future. God is in the business of taking the illegitimate, taking the environmentally unstable, the the, the situations of your past, and turning it on its head and using it, not just overlooking it or covering over it, but using it so that you can be not, more, not only useful, but you can glorify God in your usefulness. It's a cool thing. All right, now turn to 17. 1 Samuel 17. And this is the story that we all know about David and Goliath. David and Goliath, but we're, we're actually going to, I mean, this story was done so well by Michael a few sermons ago that I'm not even going to try to touch it yet. We're going to let his sermon kind of fade away so you don't remember it before we touch it again. But this is where I want to go. I want you to see how David's environmental inadequacy actually became one of his prized um, assets. All right, 1 Samuel 17, verse 1, it says this. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Socah in Judah, and uh, camped between Socah and Ashkenazi. Azekah, and Ephes, these names, man. It's like, it's like uh, Dr. Seuss or something like that. Ephesus, Dummim, Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up to battle, in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistines' camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. Now, this is a big dude. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how big he is. Some passages refer to him as being six cubits and a span. And that roughly equates to about nine foot Nine inches tall, now, other translations the the Dead Sea Scrolls and the LXX read that he is four cubits in span, somewhere around seven feet tall. okay now, if you use the, the old way of measuring somebody not by their height but by their length, it makes sense because about a seven foot tall person stretching up with long arms would be about nine nine so somewhere between seven and ten so we don't know for sure, but there's two discrepancies. Let me just show you. It doesn't really matter is what I'm trying to say. Show the picture of Shaq. All right, Shaq is 7'1". Jimmy Fallon is 6 foot tall. That's a big dude. But look, look, I want you to see something very important. How much taller is Shaq than Jimmy Fallon? He's head and a shoulder taller. Who else did we just read about that was head and shoulders above everybody in Israel? Saul! Saul! I I love the way he's got the jacket on. (laughs) I mean, it's not that, it's only about a foot difference, but the size difference is, is immense, okay? So Goliath, in that period of time, would have been a huge dude, whether he was, you know, scraping his head on the basketball hoop, or whether he was seven foot five. It doesn't really matter. He was a giant in his time, and he was not only a giant, but like Shaq, he was a professional in his field, and his field was war. All right, you can take that out. I don't really like Jimmy Fallon that much. So, all right. In 1 Samuel 9, 2, remember what it says, he, Saul, stood head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel. But remember... The difference that we just read about, the Spirit of God had left Saul and had entered into David. Remember that as we read forward, okay? Verse 5, so Saul, he was a big dude. He wore a bronze helmet and a bronze uh, scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and bronze javelin with a slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood on the sh- uh, and shouted to the Israelites in their battle formation, why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them. Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Interesting. Are you not servants of Saul? Well, later on, in the the passage, David says, doesn't say he's a, a servant of Saul. He said he's a servant of the most high God. That's who the real king of Israel is, not Saul. I love that. Aren't you servants of Saul? Choose one of the men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words from the Philistines, they lost their courage and were terrified. I think it's immensely important that Saul is included in that sentence. When he heard this, Saul was filled with terror because he knows that no matter how big you are, no matter how handsome you are, no matter how much money you have, no matter what your status in this world, if you do not have the spirit of God, if you don't have the favor of God, you should be afraid. You have every reason to be terrified of this world. Saul knew it, and the people of Israel knew it. Jump down to verse 21. Israel and the Philistines line up in battle formation, facing each other. Now, David left his supplies. David was sent by Jesse to bring supplies to Israel. It was kind of like a tax. I didn't realize this, um, but I always read it the way that David was bringing food to his brothers. But it actually wasn't that way. He was bringing food to the quartermaster to distribute among the the fighters. It was kind of like a tax that the the landowners had to give in order to support the war effort. Make sense? So that's what he did. David left his supplies. Uh, in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. Sounds nice of them. Even though they want him dead. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from terror. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of this man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. Now to David, with environmental issues in his, in his home, in his life, this actually, this actually sounds pretty good. He's the, the runt, of a litter, and he's illegitimate. What do you think his prospects are? Not good. So he hears it. He's like, hey, wait a minute. Hold on. Come again? Can you repeat that? So in verse 26, David spoke to the man who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills the Philistines and removes his disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of Saul? Wait, was that what it says? Read your book. Read your Bibles. What does it say? Defy the armies of Saul? No. Defy the armies of the living God. It's very important distinction. Verse 27, the troops told him about the offer concluding, that is what will be done for the man who kills him. Now listen to this. David's oldest brother, Eliab, listening listened as he spoke to the man and he became angry with him. And this kind of tells how his brothers thought of David. Ready? Why did you come down here, he asked. Who did you leave a few sheep with in the wilderness? Why aren't you out there getting killed right now by a bear, please? And then he goes this. I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You've come down here to see the battle. And I love what David says. This indicates that much of that tradition is probably true. Because he says this. What have I done now? As if like every turn David makes, they're like on him. What have I done now? I just came down. I'm just down here. What the heck? Cut me some slack. What did I do now? Protested David. It was just a question. I love the Bible. Then he turned from those uh, beside him to the others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave him the same answer as before. What David said was overheard and repeated to Saul. So he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, "Don't let anyone be discouraged by me by him. Your servant will go and fight that Philistine." But Saul replied, "You can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been war, in war since you were young. Since he was young. Environmental insecurities, inferiorities. You can't go down there. You can't go. You can't do it. You're not good enough." You're not strong enough. You're not old enough. You're a runt. You're illegitimate. You have this. You have that. You can't do it. And the amazing part happens next. David answered Saul. Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear come uh, came and to carry off a lamb from the flock, I went after it. I struck it down and I rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said. The Lord will rescue me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. And I can only imagine David saying, he already is. He already is. Do you see the irony of this passage? If the tradition is correct, if the Jewish tradition is correct, the very thing that was meant for his destruction has now become an element of his confidence. The very thing that people put in his way to hold him back, to hold him down, and even to kill him has now become the source of his confidence in God. We cannot believe what the world tells us. Because of our circumstances, that because of our circumstances, the difficulties that life has thrown at you, who your parents are or past failings, that you are inadequate, unqualified, disqualified to be used by God. Don't believe it for a second. Tough environments can either break you or make you. Tough environments can either break you or they can make you. Do, you. do you see what's going on here? Doesn't it look like David comes across a little bit cocky? I got this. He comes across a little cocky. So much so that his brothers are like ticked at him. Like, oh, David, go back to the sheep. Where are those little flock of sheep that you had? That's all you're good, that's all you're good for. What do you think you're doing here, David? This is a battle. You're a shepherd. Go home. I can picture noogies happening. Get out of here. This concept, but David, David doesn't let that hold him back. He just, he just shifts his focus. You know, see what he does? He shifts his focus. He shifts his focus from his brothers to the, to the people who are actually going to talk to him. He shifts his focus from the negative and he puts it on to the positive. It's very important to understand that. He comes across as cocky. But David has every right to be confident. Why? He is God's chosen. He knows that he is in God's hand and cannot be killed unless God allows it. He has seen that God has supernaturally protected him in the past. He can see how God has used the things that were designed to destroy him, lions and bears, to strengthen him instead. David sees Goliath not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity. God's been with him before. God will be with him again. He could see how God will use this situation to bring about the change of his fortunes. He would not have had that swagger, that confidence, that little bit of cockiness had he not gone through the things he had in the past. His environment actually, though somewhat toxic, I would say very toxic, actually prepared him For his greatest, victory. God will take the difficulties in our lives and use them to strengthen us if we'll just give ourselves over to his purpose. Let me ask you a couple questions. Your mic is driving me nuts. What if the church had a little swagger? What if the church had a little swagger? What if we all we're always in de- defense mode with our tail between our legs? What if we had a little swagger? If we didn't see everything that comes at us as, a, as insurmountable? I think about social issues of the day, maybe political issues of the day, et You put You fill in the blank. The things that have come at us in our lives, especially as Christians, What if we had a little Holy Spirit swagger? How about this? My God has this. My God has this. I am a child of God. I have this. My God has this. I'm a child of God. I got this. A little swagger, a little confidence, maybe even bordering on cocky. I don't know how many preachers would tell you to do that. But I don't know. David seems to have a little bit of confidence in his walk. What would it look like if there was a church that was so confident in Christ that they knew what Isaiah knew? Isaiah 54 says this, that no weapon that is fashioned against you shall prosper. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. What if the church knew that? That no weapon formed against us can succeed. That every word that is spoken against you. I mean, think about how many words are spoken against the church. For the, not just today. I mean, uh, sometimes we think about today as being like, oh, man, it's so bad. How many people here know anybody right now who has had their head chopped off for the faith? No, no, nobody? Okay, we got it pretty good here. But there's always going to be, the world's always going to come against the church. What if we had a little bit more confidence in our God and the fact that he has chosen us to be his children? What if we fully understood That is not where you, uh, what you, uh, where you have been, excuse me. It's not fully understood if we, if it's not where we have been that defines us, but where we're going. It's not where we've been that defines us. It's where we're going and more importantly, who we're walking with. See, David doesn't talk about Saul at all in this equation. He's always pointing to the true king of Israel, which is God. The circumstances around you are terrestrial. God is supernatural. He's the true answer to all of the problems. Now, this goes back to our first sermon in this series where we talked about taking every thought captive. You have to reject the talking heads that are talking at you that you are not good enough, strong enough, worthy enough, to, to, to fill God's plan for your life. I'm here to tell you that God loves to use the environmentally insecure. That's the whole Bible. He never uses anybody who's qualified. He always qualifies the willing. That's, that's pretty cool. We have to be careful about the negative self-talk that we entertain, or the negative self-talk will become a continual monologue that keeps us back instead of helping us step step out. See, I'm not, you know, pastor, we shouldn't be, you know, cocky. We shouldn't be cocky, right? I mean, that's, Jesus was humble. Yeah! Read the New Testament, though. Read the Gospels. There was points in in Jesus' ministry where he, he peacocked a little bit because he was confident, not in himself, but in his God, in his Father. So, yes, we have to be careful of that. We need to live in this tension between, but for the grace of God, there go I, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. we got to live in that tension. But for the grace of God, I am a miserable human being but for the grace of God. And then also on this side, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we live in this this tension, this balance between humility and cockiness. Humility because we know our limitations. Cockiness because we know that God has none. Does that make sense? Humility that we know that, yeah, in and of ourselves, we're pretty limited, but cockiness and swagger in the limitless nature of the God who wants me to be an overcomer through him. I am his son. I want you to say it right now. If you're you're a female here this morning, I want you to embrace the fact that you are a daughter of the most high God. If you're like me, a guy, you are the son of the most high God. Embrace that today. Understand it. Maybe you'll have a little swagger as you leave leave this place today. We must live in humility, knowing that it's only by the grace of God that we're worthy of anything. Yet we need to step out in confidence, knowing that because of God's grace, we can accomplish things in this life that would naturally be out of our reach, but supernaturally are absolutely attainable. Naturally, David should have lost the battle with Goliath. Supernaturally, it was a done deal before it even started. David knew it. Supernaturally, these things are attainable. You could break the chains of addiction in your family. You could do that through the grace and the power of God. By yourself, maybe not so bad. Not not so uh, not, not great chances. But with God, all things are possible. You could raise a godly family even though you're the product of a dysfunctional home. You could change that. You can heal your marriage that is on the rocks. It's possible. You can get out of debt and overcome generational poverty. You can get an education you need to get the career that you feel called to. You can do it. You can share Jesus in your workplace even though you're naturally an introvert. I love that excuse. Well, pastor, I'm an introvert. So? Share God in your introverted way. I don't know. Leave post-it notes if you have to. Do something. You can overcome the mental anguish of past abuse, be it mental, emotional, emotional physical. You can do that. Not by might, nor by power, but by God's Spirit. By the grace of God, you can do all this and more. It's not because you deserve it, or you're worthy of it. I love our, our common uh, the common thread to our promotional world. You're worth it. You deserve a break today. Listen, when we look at the depravity of man, we don't really deserve any of this. It's all by the grace of God. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because the world owes you anything. It's not because you're good enough or strong enough. It's because God loves you and wants to treat you like his beloved How about the church develop a little bit of Holy Spirit swagger? Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, I ask for my brothers and sisters today as they look into their environments, as they look into their circumstances, those of their past and current circumstances, and identify some things that are holding them back. God, I pray that you would Take those very things that they feel like are an anchor around their ankles and you turn it into their greatest victory. Take those lions and those bears that were meant to destroy and turn them into our greatest example of your grace and your mercy and your empowerment so that we can tackle what you have before us. Lord, help us... Have a little Holy Spirit swagger, but make sure that it's doused in gobs of humility. So, Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters, every single one of them, and all of their unique and special upbringings, past histories, things they've struggled with. I thank you for those things, not because they're good, but because you can use all things, and you can make all things work together for good, for those who love you and are called according to your purposes, just like David. We praise you for victories that are on the horizon. In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless. Have a great week. It was so awesome to be back with you. I'll see you next Sunday. God bless you.